Father, we pray that your glory might descend upon this place, that your presence would be known and felt in every heart, that we would recognize, Lord, your glory and not be distracted by our surroundings, that we would hear your word and not be distracted by the words of others or or even, Lord, the contemplation of duty, of job, of recreation later. Lord, may we be all here and recognize that you are here as well. Open our eyes that we might behold the wondrous things from your law, we pray. In the wonderful name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen. Amen. Well, we welcome you for this time of worship, and those of you who are watching on the internet, we welcome you as well. In the life of Jesus Christ, he delivered many powerful sermons, and some of them are well known. The Sermon on the Mount in the preaching of Jesus is probably the most well known. It was a sermon that was delivered on a hillside north of Galilee, probably the heights of Eremos. It's a gorgeous place to go and sit and read Matthew 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount, and contemplate how it must have been that day when Jesus taught a multitude of people the key concepts of the kingdom. Then there was the Sermon on the Boat. Um, Mark chapter 3 talks about this sermon. There were so many people who had come to Jesus from every point on the map, from the north and the south, east, and even... Uh, from the west and even east of the Jordan. They came to hear Christ, and the little Galilee was overrun with visitors. So Jesus got into a little boat and pushed it off into the Sea of Galilee, and he sat while everyone else stood. I don't know how long the sermon went, but Jesus preached to them from the protection of a boat out in the water. Then you have another sermon on the mount. This is called the Olivet Discourse. This time it was on the mountain east of Jerusalem, the Mount Olivet, the very famous mount from which Jesus would ascend, a place where he taught his disciples and gathered with them at the foot of that mountain in the Garden of Gethsemane many times. But then there is another sermon that we sometimes don't recognize as a sermon, but it it is, and it takes over a large section of the Gospel of John. This is the sermon in the room. It was in some room in the city of Jerusalem. We don't know exactly where. If you visit Jerusalem today, on the tour you will go to a crusader building built hundreds of years after the time of Christ, and they say this is the spot where the upper room once existed. Well, they don't know. An honest guide will tell you we're probably in the region, in the neighborhood. But it's a great place to read the story of the Last Supper or the sermon in the room. It's the last message that Jesus is going to deliver before he dies. In one sense, his last will and testament. It's a sermon that is now aimed at believers. You see, the first 12 chapters of John is is Jesus' public ministry, and he spoke to a lot of people who would reject him. Now his private ministry, from chapter 13 all the way through chapter 17, it's focused on those who would receive him, his disciples. It's all about discipleship. It's all about the next step. It's all about what they do after he's gone. Look at chapter 13, 
verse 1, just for a moment. John 13, verse 1. This was just before the feast of the Passover, and Jesus knew that his hour had come, the hour for him to die. He had repeatedly said, my hour has not yet come, my hour has not yet come, and now he says, my hour has come. It's time for Jesus to die. So he calls together his disciples, and he wants to show them his love, either shows them his love to the very end or shows them the ultimate extent of his love by dying for them. And he shows them how to be a servant in chapter 13 by washing the disciples' feet. In chapter 14, he tells them that he's going to leave and their hearts are troubled. He says, don't let your heart be troubled. I'm going to prepare a place for you and I'll come again to receive you unto myself. But... It didn't make any difference when he said, I'm leaving. Uh, They were paralyzed with fear. In chapter 15, he says, you know, I want you to be fruitful. And he taught them about the vine and the branches. And he told them in that chapter, the world's going to hate them, but they hated me. And if you're like me, they'll hate you too. And then in chapter 16, he reiterates the coming of the Holy Spirit. He tells them that the Holy Spirit is coming. He mentioned that theme in chapter 14, but he develops it even more in chapter 16. And the Holy Spirit will come and convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment to come. And so when I leave, it's important for the Spirit to come. He'll not only be with you, he'll be in you. And he'll do an amazing work all over the world to tell people of their need of Christ. And then when he was done with his sermon, chapter 17, he prays. We call this the high priestly prayer of Jesus Christ. There are some 650 prayers recorded, I think just in the Gospels, maybe in the New Testament, 19 prayers of Christ in the Gospels, but this is the fullest by way of content, detail, and insight. We don't have time to get there today. But you talk about learning how to pray, this is a good place to start. But this message of Christ, this sermon in the room, has a repeated theme in almost every chapter with similar points that Jesus makes over and over again, almost like if you didn't get it the first time, get it this time. And if you didn't get it that time, let me repeat it one more time. And it's all about prayer. This is Jesus teaching us about prayer. To start with, chapter 14, Jesus gives to us an incredible invitation in verse 13. He says, I will do whatever you ask in my name so that, be aware of the purpose statements, the results, the glorious consequence of praying as we should, so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. And then he repeats, you may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. Another translation says, and whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. And so really you have a repeat of this incredible invitation. It seems to be unqualified. That is, not modified with 
reservations or restrictions. It seems to be open and unlimited. The magnanimity of this wonderful invitation, the generosity of ask for anything, whatever you ask, or anything in my name, just opens the door as wide as it could be. And before we talk about any kind of modifier, and there is one, before we talk about any kind of restriction, let the invitation seem as incredible and unbelievable as it really is. Remember in the garden, God said to Adam and Eve, you may eat of the trees that are in the garden. In fact, he said, you may freely eat of the trees in the midst of the garden. How many trees do you think there were? Any idea? I don't know, Bible doesn't say. But my guess is more than a couple scrawny trees. Uh, We're probably talking about a forest of fruit trees. And not the kind you and I grow, but trees who are not yet defiled by the curse of sin. You're talking perfect creation before the fall. You're talking about a soil that would take seed from God and produce an amazing fruit, the kind of trees we're gonna have in the eternal state that we eat from, as the book of the Revelation says, with fruit that's unbelievable in its size and in its taste, in its sweetness. Are there some fruits that you don't like to eat? Yeah, and that day there won't be any. Every tree will be perfect. But Jesus said, there's one little tree in the middle of the garden I don't want you to eat from. There's one tree in the middle, don't eat from it. And what do Adam and Eve do? How come? What's so special about this tree? I want that tree. (laughs) Now, wait a minute. Thousands? Yes. One? No. And we want the no. Kids are the same way, right? Reverse psychology on kids is pretty easy when they're young. You know, if we want them to take something, all we have to do is say, don't take it, and they want it. If you tell your child, you can have any kind of food that I set on the table here, but here's one food that you can have. You can't have the dessert just yet or some other food that they want. They want that forbidden fruit. And God says, I want you to see that in this matter of prayer, I've opened the doors so wide I can't really define them. And you say, yeah, okay, tell me the bad news. Tell me what I can't do. Show me the restriction. Where's the governor? What holds me back? What reins me in? That's all we can focus in on. Before we even look at any kind of modifier, I want you to see that God has opened the door wide. And he wants you to step in with a heart of faith and began to pray for whatever and anything. That's the wonderful generosity of the God who is. James chapter one, verse five, if you lack wisdom, come to God and ask. He gives liberally and he doesn't scold you when you come. He likes to give you more than you even ask for. That's the great grace of God. So there is no greater privilege in the believer's life. We've been given the most powerful resource in the universe, a direct line with the holy God of heaven. And what a shame it is that we often neglect it or we often ignore it.
Samuel Coleridge said, the act of prayer is the highest energy of which the human mind is capable. And Ian Bound says, it is the noblest exercise known to man. The noblest exercise known to man. I think those guys are right on. But there's a qualifier, and it's an important qualifier. The verse says, and I will do whatever you ask, here it is, in my name. There's the modifier. It's important for us to see that because prayer is not just do whatever you want to do. Prayer is all of this openness guided by the character and the will of Jesus. In my name is a phrase that I think many Christians misunderstand. I think many Christians think of it as a magic formula. They really do. It's almost like you can pray for anything you want to pray, and then God is stuck in answering your prayer, no matter what you ask for. And so, you know, you, you have your prayer, and God listens to the prayer and says, man, I'm not going to answer that. And then at the end, you say, in Jesus' name, and God says, oh, I'm stuck now. I guess I've got to do what you asked. And some people will listen to others pray and they end their prayer without saying in Jesus' name and they have a conniption. They didn't say the magic words at the end of the prayer. Prayer's not gonna work. <laughs> My friend, it is not, it's not the words that you say, it's the meaning of what you say. What does it mean to pray in Jesus' name? Let me mention three things. It means, first of all, that you have access to God in Jesus' name, based on his merits, based on his death on the cross, based on his righteous life, based on the fact that you are in Christ and Christ is in you. And that's the only hope you have of having a request answered. In the old days, when a king told a magistrate to do something in his name, the magistrate was nothing. He had no power, no influence. But when he said, in the name of the king, I declare, now that carries some weight. And so when you and I pray, we come with no merit of our own. We are absolutely nothing. In fact, we're sinners, which puts us in the negative column immediately. But if we pray in Jesus' name, we're offering up our prayer based on the merit and the authority of that one we love and that one we serve, Jesus Christ. Secondly, it means that our prayer should be consistent with the will of Christ. It's based on the merit of Christ. It should be consistent with the will of Christ. Try this. End your prayers. Instead of saying in Jesus' name, end it with this phrase. I am praying this because I believe it's consistent with who Jesus is and what he desires that fit? Lord, I pray that you will give me millions of dollars so I can have a home in Florida and one in California and live a life of ease. This, I believe, is consistent with the name of Jesus and, and I'll choke on my words before I can get it out. I could say in Jesus' name real quick and not even think about what I'm saying. But if I pray, Lord, may your glory 
spread over all the earth, and may may my friend John be brought to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. This, I believe, is consistent with who you are and what you desire. That prayer zings. Later on, John in his epistle, 1 John chapter 5, is going to say the very same thing. This is the confidence we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. So what he mentioned in his gospel, he repeats in his epistle. If he hears us, if God hears us, we know that we have the petitions that we desire of him. The third thing, we ask based on the merit of Christ. We ask consistent with the will of Christ. Thirdly, we expect Christ to take responsibility for our prayer. Remember Mary and Martha? Mary and Martha, the sisters. Mary was always sitting, Martha was always serving. And Jesus tells a story about them so that we would learn how to sit more than we serve. Or at least see the importance of sitting at the feet of Jesus. To give focus and to give meaning to our service. But Martha was no slouch. When her brother was sick, she sent word to Jesus, the one whom you love is sick, come and help. This is John chapter 11. And Jesus delays his coming, and by the time he gets there, Lazarus is already dead and buried. Remember the story? And Martha says to Jesus, if you would have been here, this wouldn't have happened. And there might have been a little bit of rebuke. But then Martha says this, and this is one of the greatest statements of faith that we overlook in Scripture. She says, John eleven twenty two. but I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. Martha says, you know, my prayers may fall short, but if you pray, that's going to get through. That's true. When Jesus prays, his prayers get through. So I should say this. I pray in Jesus' name, meaning, Jesus, I want you to take this prayer and make it your own. Would you take this to the Father for me, please? He ever lives to make intercession for us. The Holy Spirit makes intercession for us with words that cannot be uttered. May you take this prayer and take it to the Father based on your merit and according to your will. Take responsibility to see that it happens. Wow, praying in Jesus' name is pretty important. And if I can pray a prayer in Jesus' name, I ought to have tremendous confidence that whatever I ask will happen. John chapter 15. Jesus continues his sermon. He's now talking about fruitfulness. And in verse 7, he says this, If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given you. Now he returns to the subject of prayer, but he does a reversal here. First of all, he gives the important qualification. Then he adds the incredible invitation. What's the qualification this time? If you remain in in me and my words remain in you what does that mean the word remain means to abide it means to live in harmony with and this is a simple way to say obey my word walk in obedience to my teaching Love my commandments. The one who loves my commandments will keep my commandments, Jesus says in the same sermon. If you 
are at home with me and my kingdom and my will and my words are at home in your heart so they guide and direct and mold your thinking and your speech, your desires and your activity. Then ask whatever you wish and you'll see answers that are unbelievable. You know, the restriction that God makes is a restriction only for our good. Parents know this when they tell their children they can't do some things. They say it because often it's for their good. Don't drink that poison. That won't be good for you. That's a restriction, but it's for their good, their benefit. And every restriction that God gives is for our good, but he's only really given one, my will, which is expressed in my word, which is offered in prayer in Jesus' name. It's all the same thing. Verse 16, chapter 15, verse 16. You didn't choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain. Wouldn't you like to live in such a way that what you do leaves a lasting legacy? That your impact remains after you're gone? That people will rise up and call you blessed, that the memory of the righteous will be a blessing, Proverbs 10 that people will remember you and they'll remember Christ and they'll remember the way you lived and what you taught. Spiritual fruit that lasts, it's not temporary. Well, this is how it happens. Remain in the Lord. Apart from me, you can do nothing, Jesus said, but if you abide in me and my word abide in you, ask whatever you want, it'll be given to you and you'll be fruitful and your fruit will remain And notice it says at the end of verse 16, and whatever you ask in my name, there it is again. He will give it to you. So prayer becomes prayer and fruitfulness. Faith and fruitfulness become the foundation of an effective prayer life. Maybe the reason I don't get my prayers answered starts right here. You have not because you ask not. And when you pray, you receive not because you ask in a wrong way. That you might consume whatever I give you on your carnal desires, your selfish agenda. Look at chapter 16. And I find it astounding that in verse 23 and 24, guess what we have? An incredible invitation. I told you in chapter 14, did you get it? I told you in chapter 15, did you get it? Let me tell you one more time so that you won't miss it. Verse 23, and in that day you will ask me nothing. Most assuredly, I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give it you. There it is. Repeated in verse 24, until now you've asked for nothing in my name, but ask and you will receive purpose statements so that your joy will be full. Here is this incredible, wide, generous, gracious invitation. But there was something going on in this chapter that really confused the disciples. If they were fearful in chapter 14 and they were told they would be hated in chapter 15, they are perplexed by the time they get to chapter 16. And that's what some sermons do. 
The longer they go, the more confused the people get. In fact, Jesus said something that really threw them for a loop in verse 16. A little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me because I go to my Father. And they said, what? Have you ever read the Bible and said, what? Have you ever read the Bible and said, that seems to contradict? Are you schizophrenic? You go from this truth to this truth and you're, you're contradicting yourself before you end the sentence. A little while you won't see me, a little while you will see me. What in the world does this mean? Verse 17, some of the disciples said among themselves, what does this mean? A little while and you'll not see me. And again, a little while you will see me because I go to the Father. And they said, therefore, what is this little while? We don't know what he's talking about. Verse 19, now Jesus knew that they were confused. Jesus knows all about your confusion and your frustration and your desires. By the way, whenever you bring a prayer request to God, he knows exactly what you're gonna pray for, Matthew 6 says. Our prayers are not so much us informing God, they're God reforming us, transforming us. So, verse 19, Jesus knew what they desired. And he said to them, are you still inquiring among yourselves what I said a little while and you'll not see me a little while and you will see me? Listen to this. That's what truly, truly means or most assuredly, verily, verily, amen, amen is the literal translation. Listen to this. Everything I say is true, but listen up. Most assuredly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. When is that gonna happen? My hour has come. Jesus is about ready to die. This is the crucifixion. The world will rejoice, especially the religious leaders. And all Jerusalem celebrated that this teacher who was taking advantage of people was now gone. The world will rejoice, but you'll be filled with sorrow. But your sorrow will be turned to joy. My friend, prayer is the link between grief and happiness. Still don't get it? Jesus said, let me give you an illustration. A woman uh, who is in labor has sorrow because her hour has come. Very words he used back in 13.1 about himself and his death. But as soon as she's given birth, no longer does she remember the anguish for the joy that a human being has been born into the world. Therefore, you will have sorrow now. I'm going to die, but I will see you again, resurrection, and your heart will rejoice, and that joy no one will take from from you. So in a little while, you won't see me, crucifixion, but in a little while, you will see me three days later. I'll be alive, and your sorrow will be turned into joy. Verse 23, and in that day, you will ask me for nothing because I'll be gone. I'm leaving. That's the whole point of this. I'll be here for a little while, 40 days, but then I'm gone. In that day, you won't ask me for anything. I mean, you'll have no more further questions because you'll understand what is going on. But most assuredly, I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, I will give it to you. Up to this point, you haven't been praying in my name. That's the meaning of the first part of verse 24. 
Up to this point, the disciples had not been praying in the name of Jesus. When he talked about that in chapter 14, that was fuzzy. He repeated it in verse 15. I'm sure they didn't understand. They'd been praying to the Father. In fact, when Jesus taught the disciples to pray, he said, this is how you ought to pray. Our Father who art in heaven. Up to this point, you haven't been praying in my name, but from this point on, things have radically changed. You're gonna be talking to the Father in my name. And he mentions it now for the third time in the middle of his sermon, in my name. And when you ask anything in my name, you will receive it. Prayer becomes even more vital after Jesus leaves because they no longer view his physical presence. And the secret of our comfort and the transformation of our grief into joy is dependent upon prayer. The secret of our comfort in his absence between first advent and second advent is prayer. We still connect with him in prayer, but we must pray. And when we do, our grief is turned to joy. I used to think that the first part of verse 24 said, until now you've asked nothing in my name. In other words, up to this point, they hadn't been praying. That's not what it means. They hadn't been praying in Jesus' name up to this point. But I think of that phrase applied to the church, and sometimes I think, regrettably, it's true. Up until now, you've asked for nothing in my name. Up until now, you don't even know what prayer is. The greatest sin of the church is prayerlessness. In Jesus' absence, it ought to be the most vital uh, ground of our comfort, the man's noblest exercise, his greatest enterprise, the greatest resource on planet Earth. Up until now, you've asked for nothing in my name. I'm regrettably, that's true. The lament of the church. But then the incredible invitation, by, uh, coupled with the important qualification, modified. But notice how it ends, verse 24. There is this inconceivable promise. So that, purpose statement, your joy may be full. Ask, you'll receive, and your joy will be incredible. The Greek language implies that you will be filled to the full, to the brim, even to overflowing. It implies that there are different degrees of happiness, even among believers, and joy depends upon the frequency and regularity and the integrity of our prayers. And prayer becomes the unseen constant in the life of, of a believer who is filled with joy. I like what J.C. Ryle says, religion that makes people melancholy and miserable, that is wretched looking, is far below the standard of him who wished that our joy would be full. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said the reason why the church doesn't attract the world is because the church appears to be such miserable people. 
Charles Spurgeon once was teaching a group of young pastors how to preach, and he said, guys, when you're preaching on the theme of heaven, I want your face to radiate with the glory of that place. Let it shine with the perfection of of heaven. He paused and said, now, when you're preaching about hell, your normal face will do. (laughs) Yeah, our normal face often does not betray the goodness of God. I mean, if the world looked at you, would they be attracted to what you have? And yet Jesus said, I want your joy to be full. Last week, we ended with Philippians chapter four. Don't have anxiety, right? Pray about everything. And the peace of God that passes all understanding will be yours. Jesus talks about that in chapter 14, verse 27. My peace I give you to you. In chapter 15 and verse 11, he says, my joy I give you. You see, prayer takes our grief away and puts it in sovereign hands. And he gives to us his peace and he gives to us his joy. He's concerned about us having joy. Look at chapter 16 and verse 20. Your sorrow will be turned to joy. Verse 21, it will be like the joy of a mother who gives birth. Verse 22, it will be a joy that no one can take from you. And verse 24, it will be a joy that fills you to the full. There are various degrees of happiness in the Christian life, and prayer is the only thing that can give us a greater sense and a greater experience of joy in God. The disciples desperately needed to hear this And you and I desperately need to hear it as well. Up to that point, they had accepted Jesus as their master. They believed in him as their Messiah. But now he told them, I am your only mediator. And from now on, every prayer goes through me. And look at how good that is. I will filter all the junk out and I will present to the Father the good ones. And then you can sit back and watch things happen. From henceforth began the practice of asking everything in my name. Be fully confident when you pray and you will be abundantly filled with incredible joy. Grief transformed into joy. There was a men's retreat and an older man stood up at the very last session of the retreat is when people could stand up and share their own response, what they experienced. The focus was prayer. People said a lot of things, and this elderly man well into his 90s didn't say anything until the very end, and he stood up with these few words. He summarized the whole retreat. He said, read your Bible, but don't pray. That will puff you up. Pray, but don't read your Bible. You will dry up. But read your Bible and pray, and you will grow up. And I need to grow up, 90 years old. And one of the greatest needs of the church today is that we need to grow up. And we do that through prayer and the Word of God. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that your Word teaches us the truth about who you are and what you desire. Help us this day, Lord to submit ourselves honestly, fully,
to a life where prayer is an integral part, the central, central focus, where we pray in Jesus' name, where we pray as we abide in your word and in Christ and your word abides in us. When we pray with the expectation as we leave every burden at the cross that we will go forth with your peace and with your joy to the full. Take our anxiety and grief away. Give us your peace and your joy, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.